0: Many people call hydrogen the quote Swiss Army knife of clean energy. Once you have it, it's the carbon free molecule. So that concept of clusters or hubs is one that many countries have been looking at.
1: energy cast and i'm jay Howard. today we're talking about a roadmap to a future with clean hydrogen late last year the department of energy released a plan to get us to 50 million metric tons of clean hydrogen that'd be the carbon-free variety by 2050 they also announced an h2 hubs program regional partnerships closely matching clean hydrogen producers with consumers with as little new transportation infrastructure as possible we're starting to hear a lot more about hydrogen and its versatility you heard my guest in the cold open this clean energy swiss army knife can be generated from renewable energy, stored at a massive level, and deployed again as electricity, fuel, or a feedstock. The combinations are extensive. My guests in these eventual H2 Hub recipients have their work cut out for them. DOE wants to get to 10 million metric tons of clean energy by 2030. We produce exactly 0 million tons today. And the U.S. currently produces 10 million tons of hydrogen the old-fashioned way, natural gas steam reforming, which produces CO2. Hydrogen also costs a lot compared to fuels like gasoline. In fact, In fact, at least one hydrogen fuel vehicle manufacturer on the market will pay you $15,000 in complimentary fuel, since the current gasoline equivalent can be as high as $8 a gallon. But it's initiatives like these that are bringing government, science, and industry together to quickly bring down the costs and plant the seeds of an infrastructure that can stretch coast to coast, and it may all start with these hydrogen hubs. My guest today is Dr. Sanita Satyapal, Director of the Hydrogen and Fuel Cells Technology Office at the Department of Energy. As I mentioned earlier, her department released a 2050 hydrogen roadmap last September. They also announced a 7 billion H2 hubs initiative, which we'll hear more about later this year. I had an opportunity to read the roadmap prior to our interview. My focus really came down on hydrogen costs, building out the pipeline infrastructure, and how soon we could see cars easily drive across the country on hydrogen. I remember reading a biography of Dwight Eisenhower, where the future president led an effort in 1919 to drive across the United States with the Army. It took 61 days. Back to my guest, I was floored by the number of programs, awards, and initiatives currently underway for hydrogen. It's enough to keep anyone busy, let alone take time to talk to me. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sanita Satyapal. We're here with Dr. Sanita Satyapal, Director of the Hydrogen Fuel Cells Technology Office, and Sunita. In September 2022, you produce a clean hydrogen strategy and roadmap, which would have the United States producing 50 million metric tons of clean hydrogen by 2050. Just for the listeners out there, we produce about 10 million tons today through conventional means, and almost none of it is carbon-free at this point. Do you think most of the hydrogen in the future will be used for transportation or power production? Where are we are going to use all this clean hydrogen?
0: Well, thank you so much, Jay. And first of all, thanks for the invitation and for doing these important shows. You're right. We announced that we see the potential for 50 million metric tons of clean hydrogen by 2050. And that's consistent with the long-term climate strategy. And we also see 10 million metric tons of clean hydrogen by 2030. And as you mentioned, we already produce roughly 10 million metric tons of hydrogen today. Most of that's from natural gas. It's actually about 10% of the global capacity. And most of that is for refining as well as for ammonia production. What we see is the early uptake will probably be for the existing market. So the refining, especially ammonia production, there's a lot of interest. And then we would see a stage where we would start ramping up for transportation and also energy storage, some other markets as well. So with transportation, especially those hard to decarbonize, like heavy duty, long haul trucks, in terms of power production, there's both interest in fuel cells. And then also in turbines, of course, that It would be very low NOx producing turbines. But there's also some other markets, of sustainable aviation fuels, other industrial markets like steel production. And so we have a number of different scenarios in the roadmap that shows how we start with the existing markets and then different opportunities for scaling up. And then the other key one is energy storage. So especially as we start to see a lot of renewables on the grid, so using hydrogen for long-term energy storage, we see multiple sectors for that market expansion.
1: I knew it wasn't going to be simple is two things, (laughs) a lot of different markets, right? So that leads us to the H2 hubs. And we're starting to hear a little bit more about this. And I think one of the big reasons for this is probably pipelines are an intensive piece of infrastructure. So why not try to cluster these things? So what exactly is an H2 hub and what is the department doing to help foster those?
0: Thanks so much. There's lots of attention on the hubs, the $8 billion announced. I want to mention, by the way, that in addition to my role as director for the hydrogen and fuel cell office, I'm also the DOE hydrogen program coordinator, and we have many offices involved in hydrogen these days at Fossil Energy, Carbon Management, Nuclear, and then the newest Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, which will be managing the hubs. And my office is also supporting that. But the actual definition of the hubs in the bipartisan infrastructure law is essentially clean hydrogen produced producers and the end users or the off takers and the connective infrastructure in close proximity so the idea is really to ensure that you don't just have the hydrogen supply and it stipulates again the definition of the hubs that you could have fossil with CCS nuclear renewables and then you could have multiple off takers so it could be transportation industrial power production and so forth but the key is really to not focus only on the production so for example electrolysis because we have to avoid stranded and make sure we have those takers, And then, and of course, if they're in relatively close proximity, then that could help to reduce the investment needed for the pipelines and the infrastructure. And it really helps to develop that cluster. So that concept of clusters or hubs is one that many countries have been looking
1: at. Sunita, how big would you think a hub would be? Are we talking about the greater Philadelphia area of Are these multi-state? How geographically large would you imagine each hub would be?
0: The funding announcement is still open. The deadline is in April, so we won't be able to say too much about it, but I can say that the initial thinking, a minimum of about 15 metric tons of hydrogen per day, I think we'll be able to say a lot more once the hubs are selected.
1: Gotcha. Leave it up to interpretation. Let them describe for you. At this moment, what do you think the biggest challenge is facing the hydrogen industry? Is it the cost to produce it? We talked a little bit about the infrastructure. That's why we're trying to do these hubs first. And what's the first step toward moving our infrastructure over to hydrogen? I think you even in the roadmap described a couple of phases, right?
0: Right. Thanks for mentioning that. We had a summit when we launched a hydrogen shot to reduce cost. We asked that exact question. We got feedback from roughly 3,000 stakeholders, industry and various stakeholders, government, states. One of the biggest challenges we keep hearing is still the cost, the cost of the end user. And we now have policies in place like the tax credit and so forth that will help reduce the cost of production. We still have the infrastructure. That was the next big challenge is that just isn't sufficient infrastructure. infrastructure, whether it's pipelines or even in your term tube trailers or storage for large amounts of hydrogen. We have three geological caverns in the U.S. In fact, one of them is the world's largest in Texas, but we're going to need to store and move a lot of hydrogen or through a carrier. One of the other challenges that stakeholders reported was just public awareness and even understanding about hydrogen and the various technologies. And then the other was basically continuing to improve the performance of the technologies, whether it's the trucks or delivery and storage technologies, compressors. Even though we're seeing lots of interest and lots of momentum, we still need continuing cost reductions and performance improvements. And then the other was codes and standards, siting, permitting. Those are all just a few examples of the challenges.
1: I would take it that the long distance pipelines would probably be the last piece in a H2 infrastructure. Am I wrong? Is that pretty much when you know you're done? (laughs) That's an
0: interesting question because it really depends. It's very application and scale dependent. For example, today, when you look at some of the applications like trucks or heavy duty transport, there are very few stations and they're very low volume. So it doesn't make sense to build the pipeline. Like you said, that would come much later. Most of the way you transport hydrogen is from tube trailers, so either gaseous or liquid. But where, for instance, you have existing assets like the refining or ammonia plants, and you may already have some pipeline, then it may make more sense to just extend that pipeline for that infrastructure. In some cases, if the end use requires liquid hydrogen, then you wouldn't use a pipeline. So when it comes to really large-scale investments and building out the infrastructure, then I think you're right, you'd have that pipeline as the last piece. But in the early phase, also, again, depending on how you need to connect the production With the end use, we may also need to see some pipelines
1: in the early phases, but not like a complete build out of pipelines. Like a transcontinental pipeline, for instance, that'd be the last piece, I suppose. And getting a little bit more into this pipeline deal, you're already doing work on that. Your office has another program called the High Blend Initiative, which is interesting to me because it aims to determine how much existing infrastructure can be used for hydrogen like natural gas pipelines. And for those of us who know a little bit about this sort of stuff, we know you can put a blend of H2 and natural gas into almost any natural gas pipeline. But there are very few existing natural gas pipelines that are good for 100 percent H2. So what do we know so far about our existing infrastructure? Are there are a lot of natural gas pipelines that could handle pure H2 at this point.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. There's only about a little over 1,600 miles of dedicated hydrogen pipeline just for pure 100% hydrogen. There are a lot of different studies. In fact, we get this question a lot. And some small percent of hydrogen is actually present in some of the pipelines, roughly 1% or so, just because it's a byproduct of some of the gasification and processes. And so there have been different studies. For instance, in the U.S., Hawaii Gas has actually been providing blends for quite some time to their customers, 10 to like 12%. We had a study that showed about 8% blend was possible. There are various values out there. It depends on the type of material, the type of pipeline, also the operating conditions, pressure, and so forth. And like you said, our high Blend initiative, which we launched, which includes national labs and industry, in fact, over, I think, 30 partners now evaluating the blending limits under different conditions. And very recently, in fact, SoCal Gas demonstrated blends of 20% at their site in California. And in fact, they built a zero emissions house that is using the 20% blend in their home appliances. So they have an electrolyzer producing hydrogen and blending that level, that concentration. So we'll be continuing to look at evaluating the different percentages, along with our fossil energy office, you know, our office, and with industry and with the high blend initiative. And we also have another initiative called HMat, Hydrogen Materials Consortium, that will look at issues like embrittlements and so forth with the pipelines.
1: Right. My- understanding of the difference between H2 and natural gas and the pipelines ends there for the listeners at home and actually me included. (laughs) Why can't you put pure H2 into a natural gas pipeline and what's the difference in, I guess, the expense, what it takes to go from a natural gas pipeline to an H2 pipeline?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on the type of material. So if you look at some of the conventional pipelines that are made of steel, one of the challenges with hydrogen is it's a really small molecule and it can basically diffuse into the material. It depends on the type of steel. It's typically high-strength, low-alloy steels that are not very good for hydrogen. And so you can form cracks, this mechanism called embrittlements, and basically diffuse and eventually crack the steel. But there are other methods such as fiber reinforcement pipeline, these polymers, concepts of putting a sleeve, basically an insert that would help prevent the hydrogen from diffusing into the material. Our pipelines have been built over so many decades. So they are different types. We've been working again with our labs trying to understand the mechanisms. How do we ensure, let's say, a thicker material or, as I mentioned, a liner that could help reduce the permeability? There's no blanket statement that we'd be able to use X percent of hydrogen in all the pipelines because there's just so many different variables. But I think that's where it's really important for these types of initiatives like High Blend and the government plus industry work to get to some of those answers.
1: I didn't know I was going to be doing so much pipeline talk in this interview. I apologize. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> One of the lines that spoke to me in the roadmap, Sunita, was this idea that you don't want to have hydrogen simply perform, quote, electrons to electrons functions. Tell us more about this idea that you can be more efficient with hydrogen if you're not just simply converting it back and forth for electric energy storage. I mean, there's a round trip efficiency issue there, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. And that's where, for example, many people call hydrogen the quote Swiss Army knife of clean energy and the fact that you can store it. Hydrogen is an energy carrier. It's not a primary energy source. So you're right, you still have to make it and there can be some energy loss there. But once you make it, you can store it. But because you're not storing just electrons or electricity, it's not like a battery. Once you store that hydrogen, you can either convert it back to electrons, produce electricity again. So using a fuel cell, which just, takes hydrogen, oxygen, or air and produces electricity directly. There's no combustion or moving parts. It's very, very efficient. You're not wasting a lot of energy as heat. So you have that electricity back to electricity. But once you store that hydrogen, you can also use it as a fuel or as a feedstock. It has multiple end uses. And so when people talk about versatility or kind of the Swiss Army knife, because once you have it, it's the carbon-free molecule. You can use it for ammonia production or making other fuels like methanol or sustainable aviation fuels. You can use it to manufacture steel. You can use it in trucks or vehicles directly. That's what we mean by it's not just electrons to electrons. It gives you that greater optionality. And many countries call it sector coupling because it's not really looking at just one sector, like power generation or transportation. You can mix and match those applications.
1: I'm really proving here that I read the roadmap. Uh, So one of the other things, I did my homework on this one. You have a chart also in the roadmap. You get into the cost of hydrogen right now, the cost specifically of electrolysis, which is usually where we can do green hydrogen. You can basically just use renewable energy and make as much hydrogen as one as long as you have water. The current cost of electrolysis, according to the chart, was about $5 to $7 a kilogram, and a lot of possibilities begin to happen once those costs get below $3 or kind of in that $2 to $3 range. How do you think we'll reach hydrogen at that price.
0: The president asked our secretary of energy, what can we do to really accelerate progress to meet our climate goals? And that was the beginning of the Energy Earth Shots initiative. So similar to the moon shot from over half a century ago. And hydrogen was the first one, the hydrogen shot, which has this really easily articulated goal of 111, which stands for $1 for one kilogram of clean hydrogen in one decade. And the baseline was from a couple of years ago, about $5 per kilogram. There are many assumptions, but that was for renewables at a cost of about $50 a megawatt hour and based on electrolysis baseline costs. And then we looked at how if we could reduce the cost of electricity, the capital cost of the electrolyzer, and then how long you can run the electrolyzer. So the quote utilization, durability, all of those would help us to get down to $2 by 2026. And that's actually in the bipartisan infrastructure law. So that's in the statute that we need to get to $2 by 2026 and then $1 by 2031. So we have a huge initiative, the hydrogen shots, to help us to achieve those goals.
1: And does it have to be an electrolyzer? Have you seen other technologies that are being proposed that are not electrolyzer technology?
0: Yes. It's really all hands on deck. So any possible pathways, even fossil with CCS, but it has to be clean hydrogen, so low emissions, and it has to be within a decade getting to that $1 at scale, assuming we can get to scale. In fact, we had a hydrogen shot incubator prize. I'm not sure if you saw that. We awarded nine small companies and the idea was any innovative technology. And we have a voucher program. So we have kind of the first phase and then we'll be evaluating them. And then we have you know additional funding we have coming up. So it could be nuclear, any approach. Electrolysis is one of the major ones that industry is interested in, but it's really open at this point.
1: I always think it's important. Don't make the guideline technology specific. Just you want to arrive at a certain result, right? right? I was a lobbyist for the carbon capture industry in Texas. We wrote a bill and other interests were trying to write specifically toward a technology and we were able to redline that one. That was a nice little thing we accomplished there. I've been telling folks, I believe that one of the ways to make hydrogen pencil is to run the electrolyzers on renewable energy, especially that that renewable energy that's being curtailed. We're seeing massive curtailments in California where a lot of the solar power, for instance, is being dumped. What do you think about that? Would that be a good solution for a lot of curtailment in renewable energy?
0: Yeah, that concept of the renewables that would otherwise be curtailed because there's just not enough transmission. And we saw that, like you said, in California and Texas. The reason that could be a good early opportunity is because that cost of electricity is so low. And the biggest cost contributor right now with electrolysis is actually the cost of electricity. The only problem though is that if we're only relying on what would otherwise be curtailed, then it's a relatively short time, like during which that electricity cost is so low, we can't only rely on the curtailed renewables. One idea that industry is looking at is how do we couple those intermittents with some other base load, so nuclear or other clean electrons, so you can run the electrolyzer continuously or as long as possible, at least until the transmission builds out those curtailed electrons are definitely a good option to get the cost down.
1: Okay, so I think a lot of people listening, driving in their cars are probably going, how soon do you believe we could have infrastructure in place for a passenger vehicle to drive coast-to-coast on hydrogen? In the roadmap, the first, second, and third waves you have listed, I think there was a lot of stuff with fleet vehicles, large trucks and stuff, but I didn't see passenger vehicles. I was just wondering if that was on purpose.
0: So where we see most interest in terms of hydrogen for transportation is heavy-duty applications. So especially those long-haul Class 8 trucks where they require long driving range, high payloads, fast fueling. And so that is really the focus area, those hard-to-decarbonize sectors instead of the hydrogen-for-light-duty vehicle market. California already has roughly 50 stations, about 15,000 vehicles, commercial vehicles, passenger, light duty vehicles that are commercially available. And so I think it really depends on the regions so as opposed to, you know, a nationwide infrastructure network. And I think that the main message is as we see some of these other markets develop and that allows lower cost infrastructure like trucks. So I think there'll be multiple early markets that can eventually help with the light duty vehicle markets. Oh, and one last thing I should mention is we have a joint office of transportation now with DOE and DOT that will also have funding related to infrastructure. So there could be eventual stations that could be multimodal stations like BEVs, fuel cells. You know, we have some interest in fuel cells for charging EVs. So I think we'll see a lot of synergy there.
1: Would those be built by the private sector?
0: Yeah. So we provide funding for companies with cost share from the private sector for our projects, including those types of projects.
1: Yeah. And Cindy, I think the big issue that I think about a lot when it comes to hydrogen, especially for transportation. I think that's on a lot of people's minds. Most folks think that our future is battery electric vehicles. You know, the big part of the IRA and the Infrastructure Act the year before was more charging availability, right? Try to reduce range anxiety for that. So I think we've kind of got it in our minds that it's battery electric vehicles and nothing else in our future. But I'm kind of in the camp that thinks that hydrogen makes a lot more sense in terms of range anxiety and raw natural resources. Do you worry about the public's enthusiasm? enthusiasm for hygiene. You talked a little bit about outreach and education because there's been so much emphasis placed on batteries. It's almost like we're picking winners, you know, and we need to show that there's other technologies out there, I guess.
0: Yeah. And I think we recognize that we really need like all the tools in the toolbox. So batteries, renewables, you know, nuclear, even fossil with CCS. So in some cases, like you said, for long distance or quick charging, that's where the fuel cells really come in. And I would say there's so many examples of success stories. And in our alone, by the way, we had over 1,200 patents that companies and, and labs, universities had basically granted because of our funding. And then many commercial technologies, the vehicles, like you said, fuel cells, electrolyzers. But the one I wanted to give you as an example is a niche market, which was forklifts. And we funded with the Recovery Act, some of the early demos. And that was where they made a lot more sense instead of the batteries, because you needed a long time to charge. We needed zero emissions in the warehouses. And now we funded some of the early demonstrations. And now there are over 50,000 hydrogen fuel cell forklifts and major companies in the zero emissions in the warehouses. In fact, every few seconds, some customers refueling with hydrogen. And so there is a very clear example where hydrogen fuel cell case made sense. And so like you said, I think there'll be certain examples where there's more of a market driver. And so we don't pick the winners, like you said. But it is true that there's just a lot viewer stations and there's a lot of investment in the charging stations. So I think we'll see, again, all the tools in the toolbox, but these examples of niche markets, there's so much interest in hydrogen now and clean hydrogen. In fact, over 30 countries have national strategies. We see the need for that carbon-free molecule, not just the electricity and especially for industrial applications, energy storage. So I think we'll see the interest continuing to grow, especially as we start to see the costs come down, see the hubs and other ways to incentivize that commercial liftoff. And then finally, the tax credit. So in addition to the batteries and so forth, the hydrogen production tax credit is really significant. As you may know, there's $3 per kilogram being provided for the cleanest, lowest carbon intensity hydrogen. So that will also have a huge impact in catalyzing the growth of hydrogen.
1: So it's not a choice. The answer is all the above. All right, Dr. Sunita Sachupal, Hydrogen Fuel Tales Technology Office. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you so much, Jay.
1: That was Dr. Sanita Satyapal, director of the Hydrogen and Fuel Cells Technology Office at the Department of Energy. Sanita mentioned a program to deploy hydrogen-powered forklifts. One of the beneficiaries of that effort was Plug Power, my guest from episode 66. I want to thank Sanita for her time, as well as John Horse at the Department of Energy for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram at Host Energy, and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 162. Be sure to join us next week when I share my panel at this year's PowerGen conference on the best business model for energy storage. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.